Okay, welcome everybody to the Naked Guru Experience. I'm Ryan Kemp. Just as a little foreword, this discussion is part of a series in tribute to the American ethnobotanist Terence McKenna and is sponsored by the Psychedelic Society. As ever, it really helps in the production of these discussions if listeners subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today's guest is Christopher M. Beish. Chris is an emeritus professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University, where he taught for 33 years. An emeritus fellow at the Institute of Noetic Scientists, he is also adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies and on the advisory board for the Groth Transpersonal Training and the Groth Foundation. An award-winning teacher and international speaker, he is the author of a number of books, including Life Cycles, Dark Night, Early Dawn, and the book we'll be discussing today, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven, in which Chris catalogues his epic journey over 20 years, where he engaged in 73 high-dose LSD sessions, working at 500 to 600 micrograms. Chris, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to this discussion. Hi, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover in just a small amount of time. And um, I just wanted to say from the start that your book has, has been profound in my life, and it's in huge discussion all around the world on multiple groups. Uh, I know the feedback from many others. It's, it's been life-changing for many others. So thank you for your work. Um, mm, thank you. I'd just like to start with a little introduction to you and your background and influences, if you will, please, Chris. Well, I'm the last person you would expect to have written this book. I was raised in the Deep South who grew up in Mississippi. I studied theology at the University of Notre Dame. I was actually in the seminary for three years in high school and one year in college. I did my master's at Cambridge in New Testament criticism. I was going to be a New Testament scholar shifted out of that, uh, got my PhD from Brown University in philosophy of religion. But when I came to YSU and I was looking for the next area to, to focus myself, I was trained in philosophy of religion, I encountered the work of Stanislav Grof, who was, it was life-changing. I also encountered the work of Ian Stevenson, whose research on reincarnation was life-changing. Mm -hmm. But it was Stan's work particularly that seemed to set the course for my life. Um, I, was, I understood immediately the implications of his research um, for not only psychology, but for philosophy. Uh, the opportunity to develop a new philosophical methodology, the systematic exploration of consciousness through the disciplined use of psychedelic states. Now, of course, the United States had made psychedelics illegal at that time. So I divided my life in half. In my daytime job, I was a professor at the university teaching courses in Eastern religion, psychology of religion, uh, comparative mysticism, a course called transpersonal studies. And then I began in my personal life, a very private exploration of uh, the, my deep psyche uh, using Stan Groff's protocols for psychedelic therapy, and then pushing those protocols to their limits to explore um, my consciousness. And through that exploration, what I came eventually to understand was the consciousness of the universe itself. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, a lot of what we're gonna discuss in, in this talk 
Um, there'll be people within the psychedelic and psychological and even spiritual community that will be very familiar with uh, what we're going to talk about and, and our terminology. But there is a good, uh, I'd say probably even a majority of human beings on our planet that uh, that are not aware of, of these kind of uh, psychological landscapes and the terminology. So for, for me, I, I think it would be helpful if you could please frame for us the context that we're talking about when we discuss uh, LSD. A lot of people will see uh, this as a discussion on drugs, when actually it's a discussion uh, far from it, from something far more profound. Yes, yes. Yeah, we all kind of suffer from the uh, carryover of our experience with psychedelics, our culture's experience in the 1960s and all the negative press that psychedelics uh, generated or were generated around psychedelics, when the true story is really very different. Uh, psychedelics in general, and LSD in particular, function as nonspecific amplifiers and catalysts of consciousness. They don't give you a particular experience. They don't. Uh, what they do is hyper amplify your consciousness. And if you use these hyper, these hours of hyper amplified consciousness carefully and conscientiously, if you shut out all outside stimulus and focus your attention completely from within, you can use those hours to explore and to, in a sense, excavate the deep architecture of the psyche. Now, um, how to put this? <laughs> there are many different ways of using these uh, psychotechnologies. You can use them in low doses to gradually peel away the layers of your personal unconscious. You can use them in high doses to sort of break through those layers and, and plunge yourself deep into um, the nature of consciousness itself. Uh, I, I should say that when I was doing this work, just to be clear, uh, I was always working uh, privately. I was always working in very controlled circumstances, either at my house or at my wife's office. My sitter for all the years of my work uh, was my wife, my first wife, who is a clinical psychologist. Uh, so I was always protected from the world. I was isolated, I was lying down, uh, I was surrounded by pillows, I was wearing headphones, listening to a very carefully curated playlist of music, which is designed to facilitate a deepening of the experience, and wearing eye shades. So I was completely protected. Someone was taking care of my body, taking care of the musical selection. My job was simply to focus on what was emerging at the center of my experience, and to allow that experience to go wherever it would go. If you do that, what begins to happen in the early stages is you begin to confront your personal shadow. You begin to front, confront all those aspects of your life which you are ashamed of, are embarrassed by, are intimidated by, are uncertain about, the deepest fears of your life, including when you get down to it, the, the fear of death, the fear of extinction, the fear of the meaninglessness of life. And then as you, if you keep that process, these fears kind of come to a crescendo, uh, a peak expression. And if you can confront that peak expression and let it take you where it wants to take you, it will take you through some crisis which eventually becomes some form of death and rebirth, some absolute shattering 
of your life as you had known it, of reality as you had known it, and then you fall into a deeper level of reality, you die at one level and awaken within a deeper level of reality, and your session shifts from purification to uh, an ecstatic phase of the session. And you basically are given, you enter into an intimate dialogue with the universe, an intimate uh, initiation into successive layers of the universe. This is what working uh, critically, therapeutically with psychedelics is all about. Mm. And w would you describe that, Chris, as what Jung would term the collective unconscious? Well, the collective unconscious is uh, a stratum of consciousness that lies below the personal unconscious. So in, in Jung's model, every we first encounter, when we go below our conscious mind, we encounter our unconscious mind, our personal unconscious. But if you can go deeper than your personal unconscious, you enter into a stream of awareness which seems to be a collective stream shared by all human beings of your species. So this is Jung's collective psyche. Right. And then if you go deeper than that, you enter into still deeper streams of consciousness, entering into what some would call global consciousness, but you can enter into levels of consciousness that go beyond space-time reality altogether, enter into archetypal levels of consciousness, enter into complete states of dissolving into non-duality and, and what might be called causal oneness. Mm -hmm. And you can enter deeper states of consciousness even than that. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, a long journey with many levels uh, of exploration along the way. So in, in your view, like the view of Jung and in many spiritual texts and, and, and very many religious texts, we have our personal individual mind, but the universe itself is a mind, a oneness of its own. Is, is, would that be correct? Yes. And our, as I experience it at least, our individual mind is a fractal embodiment, a fractal manifestation of this larger cosmic mind. So at one level, there is a functional duality, which we might think call a small mind and the big mind. Um, but at a deeper level, there really isn't a duality. There is a continuum of, of awareness that we are a small actualization, a fractal manifestation of this larger cosmic consciousness. Mm. Now, uh, just while we're discussing about your technique and, and what you were what you're up to in these sessions, uh, one of our questions from 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 the Terence McKenna um, guys was uh, about the music you were listening to. So you described the area where you were and that Carol, your lovely wife, was uh, ex-wife currently was um, sitting for you. But what what about the music you were listening to? The uh, I know this changed over time, but could you tell us a bit about that? Well, here I was drawing upon uh, Helen Bonney's work, early work in the study of the stages of, psych of psychological opening in a, psych in a LSD session. I learned about her work through Stan Groff's work. Uh, and she differentiated 
five stages of opening and closing in an LSD session. LSD session is a long session. It's, you know, it's a six to eight hour uh, session. And there is the early stages of latency, then the, um, the medicine begins to kick in, uh, then there is an acceleration of an opening of consciousness. Uh, one begins to encounter resistances and fears as one moves deeper. The, the energy continues to build exponentially. There is a peak period. And then there is, you hit the long kind of steady plateau of mm. the experience. Mm. And then there is a long, slow, gradual return. Um, so each of those stages of consciousness are best paired with particular types of music. In the early stages, you want music to calm you and relax you before the session actually gets underway. Uh, and then when the session begins, you want music that gives you a sense of, of flow and continuity, uh, music that can support your, um, uh, support your letting go of your fears and resistances, uh, shifting gradually to stronger music with more climactic uh, cadences and themes to support you really uh, letting go into the deeper turmoil. Uh, that rises in your consciousness, eventually leading to the moments of great breakthrough. And then as you move into the breakthrough, you want music that supports the vast expanse uh, and the opening of horizons that can open after you go through a death-rebirth process. And in the return, you want music which is very gentle, increasingly gentle, gives you a lot of space in which to process your experiences. Now, again, I want to mention that all of this is contingent on the type of, of psychedelic you're using and the dose at which you're working with. Now, I chose to work with very high doses of LSD. I worked with 500 to 600 micrograms. I, I started working, I did three sessions with about 200 micrograms, chose to work at five to 600 micrograms in a sustained protocol of this sort. And this generates enormously powerful experiences. I mean, the process of, of your consciousness, it, it's not like taking 150 micrograms and relaxing on a sunny, after, sun, a sunny afternoon under the trees. It's, yeah. it's a, a much more powerful uh, hyper-stimulation of your consciousness that yeah. just challenges and shatters all the limitations uh, of your known mind. And the music, uh, accordingly, is. It's, I found it. I was important to have very strong music, uh, engaging music. I found quickly that uh, indigenous chanting uh, and music from foreign cultures uh, was more effective for me than classical music. Uh, it's very foreign nature made it easier for me to surrender to the foreign territory that I was entering into. Mm. It gave me, gave my ego less room for anything to hold on to. Mm. Uh, and therefore it was more challenging, but it was more productive in that it helped me get into the deep material more quickly, more easily. Right, and the indigenous music you were using were were these kind of um, uh, ayahuasca uh, sh shaman chants, or were they they were from worldwide different different tribal chants? Um, what, what in particular? I, 
I have used the uh, iskeros from the ayahuasca ceremonies uh, late in, in my psychedelic life, mostly after uh, my LSD years. I mean, I did this work between 1979 and 1999, between when I was 30 and 50. I'm 70 now. Um, but in the primary years, I, I, I didn't really encounter the ayahuasca music until much later uh, in this process. Uh, the music tended to come from uh, ooh, a lot of African music, a lot of uh, Tibetan music, uh, Indonesian music, Japanese music, uh, South American music. I basically just was always looking for music that would give me uh, a supportive but challenging context against which I would allow myself to enter into these deep states. Mm. And I found that I could only use uh, a piece of music approximately about, about three times. After I'd used it three times, the music became encoded with the experiences that I had had with the music. And in order to allow, uh, uh, to avoid being kind of repetitiously encoded or programmed by the music, I always had to be looking and using fresh music. Right, okay. So the, the, the mind had, had uh, taken the music and you kind of knew it, and it was, it was then programmed along with the previous experience. So yes. that, if you re-listen to it, you would go back to the same experience or... Well, it would tend to pull you in that direction, or at least there was some potential for it to pull you in that direction. Right. Maybe not the second time you listen to it, but if you listen to the music repetitively, repeatedly, uh, it, can, it, it can narrow your conscious experience instead of expanding and opening it. Mm, mm. Right. So as you just touched on there as well, you, you saw this or, or what you came to, to learn that what you were doing was a, a series of iterated deaths and rebirths in one body, um, which is also quite in the, in the other literature uh, with Stan Groff's work and whatnot. Um, so could you talk a little bit about uh, how you view that and what is it relationship to actual death and rebirth as we know it, uh, the leaving of this form mm. and coming back into a new form, perhaps, your views on, on that. Yes. Well, <clears throat> it took me a long time to understand the patterns of my sessions, because in some ways they started as I expected them, for drawing upon Stan's um, map of, of consciousness that he gave us in his early writings. Uh, but then after a few years, they seem to diverge in some ways and enter into new territory. But one of the things that uh, I've come to understand over time is that consciousness has many levels, many tiers, operational levels. And the only way to, and when you enter, each time you enter into a new level of consciousness, there is required a surrender of everything you had known before, everything you had learned and assumed before, in order to enter into a level of consciousness that operates by completely different rules. Now, it's it's not that Chris Bache's ego, even a softened ego, can be catapulted out in some reality and have an experience. It's more that 
the reality of Chris Bache or the atom of Chris Bache is dissolved and you dissolve into encompassing fields of consciousness itself. And when one enters a new field of consciousness, the only way to learn in these conditions is through initiation. You learn by becoming the reality that you are being initiated into. So the early transition, uh, going through what Stan calls the perinatal level of consciousness, the confrontation with death, often reliving birth, going through repeated cycles of death and rebirth around literally physical, sort of an apparent physical dying, but also reliving the moment of birth. And it's that our physical existence is bound by birth and death. We get here by being born, we'd leave here by dying, and therefore if our consciousness is going to transcend the limits of our physical existence, we must in a sense come to terms with, or it's often we transcend the limits of time-space consciousness in an acute reliving of how we got here and an anticipation of our final separation from time-space consciousness. So there is a, a sense in which you truly do die psychologically before you die physically. And it can be such an intense psychological death that you can confuse it with physical death and you can think you are actually dying. And there's a sense in which you are, but you're dying psychologically, psychospiritually rather than physically. Then you transition to a deeper level of reality. You enter spiritual reality, which operates by different rules than physical reality. But in the early years, often, at least I'll also speak for myself, my experience of this reality was still colored by my experience of time and space. So the assumptions of time and space kind of place limits on your experience of that spiritual level of reality. And there comes a time, if you keep pushing, that eventually there is an invitation extended or a breakthrough which you come to where you have to let go even deeper, uh, let go to something even deeper than your physical identity, which shatters you yet again and takes you into yet another level of reality, which is deeper, a deeper level of spiritual reality than the earlier level you had been experiencing. And this process repeats itself multiple times if you you use your sessions in a focused way and always pushing to explore the deepest dimension of consciousness that's possible. I want to say, I don't advise that people do what I did. I mean, really, if I were doing it over again, I would not adopt such an aggressive strategy as as I adopted, always pushing so hard with such high levels of of LSD. I would be much gentler on myself. I would balance high-dose sessions with low-dose sessions. I would balance working with LSD, which is a kind of a high-ceiling psychedelic, with psilocybin or ayahuasca, which are much more body-grounded psychedelics. So I'm describing something without recommending it uh, to be followed or be used by other people. Truly, I don't. Mm -hmm. But doing what I did and learning how to navigate these waters and surviving my own foolishness, I'm just, in the book, I'm just trying to tell 
stage by stage exactly what happened as best I could on this deepening immersion into the universe. Mm-hmm. And when you say pushing forward, that, that suggests a kind of active, uh, a, a, an active role in the, in the experience. Uh, was it a was it a process of pushing upward into these kind of further landscapes, these further psych- psychedelic and psychological vistas, or was it a process of surrendering into them, um, or, or maybe a combination of the two? It's really a matter of surrendering. Uh, the only pushing is by the repeating of the circumstances of availability. You um, you create a, a, a completely quiet and safe container. You detach yourself from all the circumstances of your daily life. You take a powerful medicine. You surrender yourself to the care of another. And then you open, you allow yourself to open. Mm. What happens next is beyond your control, at least working with this substance at this high a dose. It's beyond your control. You surrender to a larger consciousness. and, And I've the longer I work with this I, this material, the more it became clear that there was a larger consciousness that was guiding my sessions, uh, guiding my education in the sessions, that was meeting me, breaking me down, loving me, caressing me, breaking me down some more, uh, forcing me to face certain things, challenging me to face certain things, and then uh, thrilling me taking me into deeper and deeper intimacy with what I would come to describe as the creative intelligence uh, of the universe. The, the co- It's hard to describe when you enter so deeply into states of consciousness that so far transcend your physical consciousness. How do you describe it? What what categories do you have to describe it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we could call it the cosmic mind, um, the universe's mind, uh, the great expanse. In my in my heart of hearts, I've came to call it my beloved. Yeah. Because returning to such intimacy with the very source of your existence, with the source of all existence, awakens such a deep passion of of embrace and being embraced that it uh, well, I call it my beloved. Yes. And I mean, what I really love about your work it, for me it, and, and somewhat Stan Groff's work is it reconciles uh, psychology, psychedelics, religion and spirituality in a way. It can be read in a way that reconciles that uh, when you discuss terminology and you discuss it as your beloved. Uh, Jesus may have called that the kingdom of heaven within. Buddha may have called that Dharmakaya, uh, the Hindu mm-hmm. Atman. Um, and so there, there exists kind of a, a spiritual terminology that to a lot of people is very alien and dogmatic and separate. But once viewed in the context of, of, of your work uh, through, through the psychedelic, where one can experience this as a direct contact with the transpersonal, the, the transcendent, uh, it, it all fits very, very nicely. And you, you all of a sudden become to understand what those human beings were trying to describe. It's not something abstract. It's something that can be experienced uh, in a number of ways. Would you, would you agree? 
Yes, it, it can. And certainly once these experiences become part of our cultural story, they be, are subject to all the distortions that culture can bring. So they can be subject to the distortions of historically limited perspectives, to patriarchy, to uh, all sorts of cultural constrictions. Um, but I had the advantage of, I was teaching world religions and I was teaching courses in comparative mysticism. And so over and over again, year after year, I was studying some of the great spiritual teachers from around the planet. And if you do this, you very quickly uh, outgrow the limitations of your own religion of birth. Mm. And you begin to enter into this collective perspective where uh, you begin to recognize a deeper fundamental core overlap of many of the teachings of the different uh, great religious teachers, what, what is often called the perennial philosophy, the, the perennial tradition. Mm. And at the same time, uh, so there is a sense in which recognizing what people have been talking about when they, when they talk about the divine, what they talk about when they talk about transcendence or Atman and Brahman, mm. these categories become alive for you as a, uh, as an essential vocabulary to articulate what is becoming your natural experience of, of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, at least in my experience, pushing as deeply into the universe as I did, I was shown over and over again that all the religions of the last four or 5,000 years are radically and profoundly incomplete. They are noble, uh, initiatives in history which reflect a certain state of human evolution but the landscape of human evolution the landscape of the divine initiative and i even hesitate i don't talk about god very much and i hesitate to even talk about the divine because those words are so heavily laden with theological presuppositions that i don't necessarily want to affirm or buy into yeah. But basically, when you when you begin to experience the magnitude of the intelligence that suffuses existence and the magnitude of the compassion and, and intimate love that the creative impetus, the creative intelligence has for all of its manifestation, all of its manifest beings, mm. it just it. it it just opens worlds within worlds within worlds. So there is a, both an affirming and a, and a humble recognition of the greatness of the great teachers and saints of history. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a sense that even they, uh, even they have not captured perhaps the vastness of the great expanse of the world, uh, of the world as it is. The world of um, you know our 13.7 billion year old world, mm -hmm. and the scale of the evolutionary project. You know, mm -hmm. Sri Aurobindo said that humanity was a transitional being, and if we don't understand what we're transitioning to, it's hard to understand what we are even right now. Yes. That everything we're doing is taking us. It's not, we're not only the culmination of everything that has been in our evolutionary story, but we're also laying foundations for what we are in the process of becoming. And what we're becoming is something 
at least from my experience, is not something that results in a culmination of a few thousand years out, but hundreds of thousands, millions of years, mm. millions of years coming. So it's just that radical expansion of existential horizons that that qualifies my relationship to the world's religions. Mm-hmm. And your journey in particular, I mean, what, what I, I really enjoyed in the book as well was your journey hasn't necessarily been one of just love and light and bliss and, and divine unfolding, uh, as many have the kind of presupposition of the spiritual path uh, to, to use a uh, the lack of a better word, the spiritual path, they think is some kind of uh, love and light and a blissful uh, path. But actually, it can be very um, difficult, very isolating, very lonely, uh, and, and, and very nightmarish in some, some sense. Uh, many people that are on, on the path, whether it be through psychedelics or whatever uh, spirit, spiritual practices they may be involved in, uh, to 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 be uh, on that individual path can be very um, difficult. And what you mentioned in your book was some of the dark side of what you've been through, very openly and honestly, uh, voyaging, especially in the, in your early sessions, through the hell realms. Um, and and in, in your sessions eleven to fifteen, uh, you mentioned the hell realms. I mean, could you could you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, I had uh, I had to think a lot about how to uh, present the different types of suffering and the different types of challenges that I faced on the journey because, and in fact, it, it was my greatest concern in beginning to share my the story of my journey with the world, with others, because I did not want them to become scared of the unseen universe, and I did not want them to prematurely misjudge the psychedelic method itself. And I, I really had to to think about this. And eventually I decided just to tell to tell what happened, to lay it out and to tell what happened. And there is great joy and, and great beauty and great ecstasy and just I, I mean I wouldn't trade these 73 days for any treasures on earth. I mean they just they showed me so much and they gave me so much that whatever um, purification processes I went through and whatever pains I went through, I pay them gladly uh, to have been and have been rewarded more than uh, fairly for uh, what happened along the way. But the, what you mentioned, the hell realms, well, this is the kind of scenario. I, I basically, after about two years of work, I went through a, a really crushing ego death where my, my historical existence was just turned inside out and shattered. And I thought, okay, I've gone through ego death. <laughs> then uh, I won't have to go through that anymore. I won't have to go through ego death. Uh, everything's going to get better and better now. Mm. But what happened was that very quickly, within a couple of sessions, I began to enter into realms of collective suffering that were just much, much worse than anything I went through in ego death. I entered into what Buddhism calls the hell realms. Uh, I called it an ocean of suffering. I was systematically over two-year period, and I, I was taken deeper and deeper and broken down at deeper and deeper levels into realms of 
collective anguish involving thousands and thousands and thousands of beings, human beings, and thousands of years of history in very detailed patterns of configuration. And at first I thought this must be a deeper iteration of ego death. I must be going through a deeper form of ego death. But eventually, by the time this ended, I, I realized that this wasn't about my personal ego death. It wasn't about personal healing at all. That somehow the universe or something was using my sessions to facilitate a healing of my species, of my people. That in somehow in opening myself or allowing into my conscious awareness the unresolved trauma of history, all the terrible things we've done to each other, all the killings and maimings and rapes and just that leave terrible scars in the collective psyche, that somehow when a person opens this deeply, if you are willing to let this pain and suffering in, it has a clarifying effect, a healing effect, a transformational effect that heals a certain portion of the collective psyche of humanity. Now, I, I wouldn't dare try to estimate how large a portion or what its impact is, mm -hmm. but I was just taken repeatedly through these hell realms, into these hell realms, and eventually they culminated. Uh, I was about four, year and a half, four and a half years in, 24 sessions in, and I, they culminated in an extraordinary kind of orgy of the ocean of suffering. And then I was spun out into a deeper level of reality that lay beyond the hell realms, into archetypal reality. And at that point, all the collective suffering stopped, just as the ego death suffering stopped when I went through ego death. The ocean of suffering stopped when I went through this culmination and entered into archetypal reality. Mm. But later, at deeper levels, as I went into still deeper levels, there were still uh, challenging periods that I would go through, just periods where I entered into patterns of chaos, patterns of psychological dismemberment, uh, patterns of just different subtle, subtle forms or ordeals that were hard to understand because, you know, we're charting some territory that lies far, far deep into the, into the collective fabric of things, into the, not the collective fabric, this is beyond the collective fabric, into, into the dimensions of the divine, into the dimensions of the cosmic mind itself. Mm. Uh, but every time I came into one of these sort of patterns of ordeal or patterns of clarification, I, I, I came to recognize that these were all some form of purification, that if I allowed these things to take place, something was being lifted from my system, something was being broken open, and eventually it would culminate and take me into yet a, a new stunning level of discovery and a deeper intimacy um, with the body of the divine.
Mm-hmm. I mean, many, many people at these points where they're going into an ocean of suffering and in your book describes also your experiences were sometimes violent and vomiting and, and uh, many people would say, well, that's enough of that, you know, <laughs> I'm going to, I understand. <laughs> I'm going to start. Sure. Uh, what, what was it that uh, drove you forward in, in particular into this? I mean, um, what was that drive to, to, cause it, it could have hypothetically been that they would never end. You would just continually, you, you didn't know what was, was over the horizon, I guess. So, or did you intuit that? I didn't know what was in the horizon, over the horizon, but it is something that I, perhaps the most profound gift that Stan Groff gave me was a trust in the universe, a trust that you could surrender yourself to whatever was asked of you. And if you did so completely, the, the universe would, in the end, it would take care of you. You would go through ordeals that you may not understand. But in the end, you would understand that you would get large enough and enter deeply enough into the universe that with hindsight, you would get a deeper understanding of what was going on. But absolute trust, if you surrender completely, uh, it will lead to breakthrough. It will lead to a deepening initiation. So and I think, you know, everybody has different measures of tolerance and different circumstances. And again, I, I don't think it's wise to push, even though I did this as responsibly as I could and, and really taking very good care of my body throughout and in between my sessions. I was doing about five sessions a year. I worked for four years. I stopped for six years and then I worked for 10 very intense years. So over the 14 years or 14 and a half years when I was actively working, I was averaging about five sessions a year. Mm. So I had months in between every session to digest my experiences, to write them down, to think about them, to reflect upon them. And I was doing a lot of yoga in between. I was doing a lot of meditation, a lot of spiritual practice. But even doing all of those um, preparatory practices, I found myself pushed to my absolute limits in going as deeply as I did. Uh, And ironically, in the end, it wasn't the pain that was the most difficult thing to manage in my work. It was the ecstasy. It was the intimacy with the fabric of existence. It was entering into what I came to call the diamond luminosity, mm-hmm. what Buddhism calls Dharmakaya, the uh, absolute, the, the clear light of absolute reality, entering into such dissolving into the light that precedes the physical universe's manifestation, dissolving into the crystalline body of the divine. That ecstasy, that joy, became more difficult to manage than the pain of getting there. And the reason it became difficult to manage was not because of the joy itself, but because it was a temporary condition. I could not stay in that condition. Now, there are great masters and great beings who can stay in that condition and all honor always to the great ones. But in my condition, in my circumstance, I could only gain temporary access to these realities And when I would come back out of them, I was simultaneously, deeply and profoundly spiritually satisfied and gratified. And I was left 
with an aching sense of bereavement because I could not stay, I had to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, it reminds me a little bit of what Baba Ram Das uh, used to talk about. He, he used to say, we're all walking each other home. And a little bit about what you're you're talking about. It, it 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 one necessarily doesn't require psychedelics in order to 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 go to this place. There are people that seem to be able to do it without the use of these tools, and and life itself is an analogy for what you're talking about. We go through on a on a, a day-to-day basis forms of suffering of which we tolerate and overcome for the good of ourselves and the community and the society and the human race, and we yes. also experience periods of bliss. So we we are interfacing with our reality on a day-to-day level, independently of these kind of um, cosmic experiences. W- would you agree that's the case? We're all walking Ab- home together, I mean. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, once again, what happens in these sessions is that your consciousness is temporarily amplified. That's all. Your consciousness is temporarily temporarily amplified. So if you want to understand what truly happens in a session, you must have an understanding of basically what happens, what's happening in life outside of a session. Mm. So in that context, my understanding of life, which I, I draw from my philosophical studies and psychological studies, and then in addition to that, my psychedelic experiences, uh, for me, reincarnation is a simple fact of life. It's just, this is how life works. We incarnate, there's a narrowing of our conscious experience with an incarnation. We take on a particular persona, male, female, rich, poor. We're, we, we incarnate in a particular historical period, social conditions. We live our life as best as we can. And then we die, we expand back into our deeper soul consciousness back into spiritual reality when we die our consciousness expands we return to the light Mm -hmm. when we incarnate there is a contraction into the specificity of our next learning exercise different gender different social circumstance different historical period we live and learn and then we expand because i'm an academic i tend to see this as like a semester you know we choose (laughs) our courses for the semester and then we're locked in And then at the end of the semester, we get some breathing space, expand. So we keep this up and we're always kind of, we're in the dance Mm. of learning to create, learning the consequences of our choices, making good choices, making bad choices, you know, just learning and growing and becoming more. And this is the dance of life. This is taking place and it's been taking place for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. When we begin to meditate, without psychedelics, just when we begin to meditate and focus on the consciousness which is living through all of these lives, one of the things that happens is we speed up what is taking place with reincarnation. If you want to speed up your spiritual evolution, then focus on the fundamental inner experience of your being. And if you do that, you begin to confront themes and issues and choices which if you didn't do that would eventually manifest in some conditions in the outer physical world but if you don't want to wait for them to manifest in the outer physical world you can confront those conditions in your inner psychological world mm-hmm. so you you actually you speed up your evolutionary process when you focus in your your inner being in, in the sort of the inner flow of your being 
And psychedelics is simply another form of spiritual practice which very intensely for temporary periods of time focuses on that fundamental core stream of your being. And so there is a detoxification process, an accelerating process that takes you eventually deeper and deeper home. I mean, deeper and deeper. There are just so many levels of home, so many levels of return. But yes, this is simply, we are simply uh, dancing the dance of life just doing it in a slightly different form. And you can stop anywhere along the way. And just as you can stop your meditation practice, you can stop your psychedelic practice, and you continue to dance the dance in mm. life. Mm. It is the dance. I, I mean, we, we touched upon this uh, briefly in a, in a private conversation, but we discussed the idea of moving outward from the kind of collective uh, egoic mind, what Urquhart Tolle would call the collective egoic mind, and uh, moving into a process of what Jung would term a process of individuation, becoming uh, an, an individual. Um, and that, that process can be a very lonely process too. If, you, if you're not within the community that understand you, like, like Jung said, loneliness is not, um, not, not from, comes from having nobody around. It comes from not being able to express the ideas that are important to you or that others find it admissible. This, this idea, the, the, the journey of individuation can be a lonely one. And the, the road to that, as you're discussing it now, is uh, this process of evolution and, and meditation uh, and I'm sure you've been through experiences like that, like many of our listeners and, and people that are on these journeys. Uh, I'm sure you've been through those experiences, you know, through, through this book and through your life. Would that be correct in saying? Yes. I mean, I think basically the deeper I've gone into this, on the one hand, I, I feel more deeply my fundamental common ground with all human beings. I don't feel unique or separated or set aside in any way. I, I, I resonate more and more deeply with the human condition and with the dance that human beings are, are dancing uh, across the globe, around the world. Mm. And, you know, in, in many spiritual traditions, if we address this issue of individuality, in my book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, the last chapter of that book, in which I am discussing there a number of things, but one of the things I'm discussing is my own psychedelic history. Uh, in the last chapter, the, fate, the name of that chapter is The Fate of Individuality. Because many spiritual traditions basically say the individual is an, is an illusion. Individuality is basically a, uh, it's just an illusion. And the goal is to transcend individuality and return to the one. And you, the drop returns to the ocean. Vedantic thought in India, basically, that the drop returns to the ocean, you dissolve into the divine, and that is coming home. And, and, and any kind of holding on to any kind of sense of separate existence, individuality, is basically, um, it's, it's not a fully mature spiritual uh, understanding or experience. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that. My experience has been that individuality is one of the great gifts of creation. Individuality is one of the great manifestations of, of existence. Mm -hmm. And what we don't want to do is live in an isolated individuality, to think that somehow our individuality is, makes us separate 
ontologically in with respect to the core of our being separate from other beings in the world unique in the world or uh, that our individuality is a permanent abiding individuality which never changes i mean basically i agree with buddhism in their teaching of anatta or no self or emptiness of self that there is no private self in the sense of a of a separate self, that all our experience is part of the matrix of cause and effect manifesting in a continual arising and falling away. And there is no unchanging self. There is no absolute unchanging self over time. Mm. But if you can let go of that small sense of self, that ego, which sees itself separate and unchanging, and open into, and grow into a deeper experience of individuality which is in continuous exchange with all living beings uh, and in continual expansion and growing and development uh, and i think that basically <laughs> the maturation of that individuality over time the maturing of that selfless kind of individuality is one of the great uh, spiritual uh, gifts of our time space experience so the two truths one is the truth of wholeness the truth of oneness the truth of interconnectedness of interpenetration another truth is the truth of the learning system which experiences all these things learns from it internalizes it and becomes more because of it which which is also one of the things that i grappled with within your book and wasn't quite sure about was uh, are we talking about we have one soul which is the, uh, known as god or uh, uh, to many people is is ter the term linguistic reductionist terminology that we have to kind of use is the god or the divine uh, mm -hmm. or are we talking about many individual souls uh, which, which is it or is it both well we can choose to use language any way we want. We can we can define our terms as we go, as long as we're careful and we know what we're doing. Mm. So one can talk about God as the one soul of which we are all drops within that one ocean of soul, and that's perfectly fine. We can also use the term soul to refer to the accumulated experience of all of my former lives integrated in a unique individual uh, consciousness which is as unique as a fingerprint within a still larger matrix of the collective species mind and a larger matrix within the planetary mind and within a larger matrix of the galactic mind but a true individual uh, an individuality which emerges so we can determine, we can use the word soul any way we want, as long as we're clear what we're doing with it. In my experience, uh, about halfway through my journey, in session 38, which is a session I discuss in the chapter on the benediction of blessings, uh, I had a very interesting experience. Uh, Previously, 11 years previously, I had the experience when I was coming through the ocean of suffering 
I had a series of sessions which repeatedly took me back into the same experience, taking me deeper and deeper into it, which was experiencing the totality of my life from birth to death as simultaneously present, as a completed whole. It was, it was like looking down my life from beginning to end and seeing it and experiencing it as a totality, complete and finished within, within itself which was a mind-shattering experience and it it and I discuss it in the in the chapter uh, deep time in the soul but 11 years later I was given I was a very deeper stage of the work I was working at a causal level reality a little reality of oneness and in this time I had the experience of seemingly integrating all of my former lives. They were coming in quite quickly uh, from different centuries, different periods, and it was like wrapping a filament of white light around a kite spool, just wrapping these lies were coming in and were wrapping themselves around this kite spool. And at one point they hit critical mass, they fused, and when they fused, there was an explosion of diamond light from within my chest. And I was catapulted into a state of consciousness that was unlike any I had experienced before. I was an individual, but beyond any category or any experience of individuality that I had ever known before. And I came to language this in terms of the birth of the diamond soul. And it gave me, I was given a series of teachings in this session that all focused upon reframing my understanding of what the goal of reincarnation is about. Because much of our teaching of reincarnation comes from cultures and, and times in history where the pattern of the teaching seems to be uh, we are mired in illusion. We grow slowly, slowly through multiple incarnations. Eventually, we come to a discovery of our essential divine nature. We awaken to our divine nature. And when we achieve that awakening breakthrough, we leave time-space. In Hinduism, the earliest term for reincarnation was moksha, escape. Yes. We escape time and space. We escape ego. But I think... All of the and, and the same thing, we have all of the cosmologies of the religions of the last 4,000 years or so are all up-and-out cosmologies. We achieve salvation, we achieve spiritual realization, and we, we leave. We, we achieve nirvana, and when we die, we move into pari-nirvana, final nirvana, our nirvana without the body. Mm -hmm. They Basically, spiritual realization culminates in some off-planet, heavenly paradise, whether it's the heaven or the garden or um, some off-planet paradise. And I think basically that is a fundamentally incomplete cosmology. I think it represents a certain stage of our human development, but it's not the end of the story. I think in this experience, what I was being shown is that eventually in this long, long process of expanding and contracting, being dying and being born, dying and being born, learning more, learning more, over time, over time, sooner or later, sooner or later, the soul, which usually we experience, and by soul, I don't, I mean 
the totality of all of our experiences in all of our former lives. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, the soul wakes up inside the body. The soul wakes up inside time and space. That's what I'm calling the birth of the diamond soul. It is to be spiritual. It is a spiritually waking up, a spiritual maturing, a psychological maturing where we know that we are much, much more than our body's ex physical experience. We know we are more than everything we ex have experienced during the years since our physical birth. We are no longer tempted to identify strictly with the limits of this particular body. We have an intuitive recognition of the breadth of all of our relationships with human beings that we have been developing relationships with for thousands of years. And there is a transparency, not only to other people or to other species, but a transparency to the universe itself so that we can, we can rest, we can absorb, we can commune more deeply with the, the divine, say, in, while we are inside time and space. That's the birth of the diamond soul. This, yeah. is a, this represents, I think, um, the next stage of our human evolution, which is a spiritual maturation. It's, it's heaven on earth. It truly is heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. So, you, so what you mean is the the spiritual realm as we know it, one might kind of perceive that as the dream world for those without experience uh, with the tools. It, the the dream world doesn't exist in in matter. It's it's outside of matter, and that is the source of creativity. It's the source of what some people term uh, God, the source of the d divine, uh, and that is manifesting in matter. But you're talking about the divine, the, the collective mind, manifesting in matter within the universe. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, basically, we can think of it perhaps like the mother universe and the daughter universe. The mother universe is spiritual reality, which is continually infusing and uh, orchestrating and um, shaping and receiving physical reality. So there is at the very quantum level, this dance that takes place at the subatomic level, we're, we're learning that there is a continual infusion of energy into time and space coming from this quantum or, or sub-quantum realm. That, you know, 96% of the universe is dark energy, dark matter. That, that physical existence is just the surface of things. Yes. With reincarnation, we learned that our, our egoic identity is not our final identity. It's only a, a temporary identity. There is a deeper identity that is emerging over long stretches of historical time. There's a soul identity. So mm. there is... I think there's just a, a sort of a larger sense of the of the architecture of the universe, there's a larger sense of, of the landscape um, that we are um, how to we are standing always astride two realities. We have one foot in the daughter universe, mm -hmm. one foot in the mother universe, mm -hmm. and the more we can make this a conscious, you know, integration, the more we begin to. Uh, consciously live as the expression of the inflowing of this mother spiritual energy into the divine energy of manifestation. So I, I tend to image this very simplistically as one reality is light, 
and the other reality is green. The manifest universe, the green universe, the physical world is, a, is the manifest body of the divine. The world of pure light, the world of pure spirit is the other side of the divine, the transcendent divine. We live with the foot in both of those realities. Most of the time, I guess, we tend to get caught in just the physical side of reality. And so we tend to long for the spiritual dimension. But I think as we awaken more completely and more deeply, we realize it's, it's not simply a matter of awakening and leaving time and space, as if something's wrong with time and space, but awakening more completely to the fruition of the evolutionary project inside time and space, so that can we become more conscious creators and collaborators in creation inside time and space. Mm. It doesn't deny the joys of heaven. It doesn't deny the joys of transcendent reality. Uh, but it is. it leads to a new cosmology. It needs, leads to a deeper understanding of what the purpose and project of physical existence is. Mm -hmm. uh, within one of the questions that came from uh, one of the Terence McKenna groups, uh, from one of the members there was, and it's nicely slotted in here, I guess, would be that during your experiences, did you meet any entities, any entities that existed in a, a non-atomic realm, in, in the quantum realm, uh, any, any entities there that were not human souls. Uh, we, we, we can read about that in uh, Rick Strassman's work, uh, The Spirit Molecule, and some, um, some of the, the work he's done. Um, was there anything there for you that was foreign, from that was not the collective, that was not, not uh, this one soul, or was it all a, a oneness? Well, it's interesting. I have had experiences where I have met discrete intelligences, discrete entities in spiritual reality. Uh, but on the whole, that has not been the flavor or the trajectory of my experience. And again, this is partly to do with the substances and partly to do with how we work with the substances. The entities seem to be particularly uh, prominent in experiences that involve DMT or some of the variations of DMT, uh, uh, ayahuasca or 5-MeO-DMT sometimes, um, or straight DMT. My experience, again, used LSD, somewhat different. I kept being dissolved into deeper levels of spiritual reality, and it was as if I was being dissolved not into a society of beings, though I did meet beings in different forms, but at a different, at a deeper level, I was being dissolved into deeper levels of being itself. It's, it really was like uh, being dissolved from atomic reality, leaving atomic reality to entering into quantum reality, into fields of awareness and, and, and larger patterns of awareness. Mm. So at every level, there are patterns which one could, one could categorize as entities. But if you really sit with each of those entities in deep forms, they eventually dissolve themselves into yet still deeper patterns within existence itself. 
So on the one hand, I, I do. I'm really comfortable with the entities, and I see the wonderful art produced by the great ayahuasca artists, uh, Pablo Amaringo, and just the, it's a f universe filled with entities and spiritual presences, and I'm really comfortable with that. That does resonate with my experience. But my deeper experience has been to be dissolved into deeper and deeper patterns of being rather than separate beings. Mm -hmm. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. So um, just moving then on, as, as we look to the future, I mean, we just touched upon that a little bit, but what, what inclinations you've had, according to the book and what you've just mentioned there, is you've seen where you think this process is going and how this ties in with um, the human journey, not only now uh, and, and the past that we've discussed, but, but where it's going into the future. I mean, could you talk about your insights there and how you think this is unfolding at, at the moment, particularly now under, under these circumstances of uh, COVID lockdown and whatnot, uh, which all mm. just part of something much larger, much larger, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is one of the largest surprises for me uh, in this work. And I'm really cautious about um, entering into it. And yet I, in discussion, even though I also believe it's perhaps the most important body of a visionary experience that emerged in my work. because, And I say it was surprising because in the early years of my work, I, I saw doing this work in terms, I had a model of individual transformation, either individual healing or individual enlightenment. I was doing this work to, to improve myself in some way or shape or form. Um, but what happened was, of course, in entering the ocean of suffering, uh, it, it all became about collective transformation. It all became about healing the collective and about releasing the pains that have been accumulated in history in the collective psyche. And then I was moved into deeper levels. And about that time, in that transition, uh, a series of visions began. And these visions were consistent from the 23rd session all the way to the 70th session. It wasn't that they were there every session, but they were periodically. I was being initiated into a particular understanding of history, a particular understanding of human history. And repeatedly, there was a sense that humanity was coming into a period of decisive significance, a period of profound breakthrough, a, a, a spiritual culmination, a culmination of our entire reincarnational history, that we're, this was going to be a before and after moment. This was one of the ways it was envisioned was um, I was climbing up this mountain and on the other side of the mountain, I was in sort of shadows, but on the other side of the mountain, there was this brilliant light, brilliant valley with just brilliant light and that humanity was coming into the, a fundamental turning point. And this went on for years, um, this vision of it. And I eventually wrote these down. I collected them and I, I call them the visions of awakening. But I did not see, I had not seen how life was ever going to carry humanity across the threshold. Because when I looked at the world around me, 
I saw as much evidence for our being stupid and making just terrible choices as I did for us making spiritually uh, wise choices. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not see us letting go of our collective greed. I did not see us uh, taking more and more responsibility for the well-being of others. Some were, of course, but many weren't. And then in 1995 and 55 sessions into the journey, uh, the universe took me deeply into deep into the future, deeper into deep time than it had ever taken me before. And it took me into an experience which I experienced not as an individual, uh, even a spiritual individual, but I experienced it, and I know this sounds outrageous, but I experienced it as the species. I was dissolved into the collective psyche so deeply that for these hours, I was our species mind. I was dissolved into the collective psyche. And in that context, I experienced a building crisis, a mounting crisis that just was taking away, stripping us of reality as we had known it. It was it was the dark night of our collective soul. It was a, a time in history where a, a real confrontation with the consequences of choices that we've been making historically, a real confrontation with our uh, poor choices. We were losing control. We were, we were just being shattered. It really it reached a point where I thought it was an extinction event. I thought we were all going to die. It was like being on a small island when a hurricane comes upon, comes upon it, that it just was wiping out all life on the island. And mm-hmm. just when it was at its peak, just when it was, uh, it seemed that death was inevitable, the storm passed and there were survivors. Many had been killed, but there were survivors. And when the survivors started to pick themselves up and started to gather and find each other and reconstitute life, there was springing forward, springing from within us, the most extraordinary uh, phenomenon. There was this a, a birth of new insights, a birth of new values, new understanding, new priorities, uh, new social initiatives, there were basically an unleashing of something that we had learned, something that had taken place in the center of the human heart in the midst of this crisis. Basically, just as a saint in undergoing intense spiritual practice goes through the purification, which John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, likewise, in our collective evolution, the dark night of our collective soul, a time of complete surrender and intense purification which breaks us down at the center, yielded to a time of great awakening, a a, a great spiritual manifestation, a great uh, redirection of the human heart and of human culture. It was a, a true great awakening of the species. And in time, in subsequent sessions, I was taken into the deep time again, and I began to be shown that this represented not simply uh, an historical breakthrough and not simply a technical or economic uh, restructuring of our culture, but it was a truly seismic shift in the depths of the collective psyche. A pivot took place 
in this global crisis, a global systems crisis, which appeared to be driven by a global ecological crisis. It was a shift in the core psyche, the collective psyche, which all other human beings draw from on their individual life. So when the collective psyche shifted, it meant that every generation that was born on the planet after this shift took place, they were being informed by and were infused by this new blueprint, this new psychological blueprint, this new capacity. And I think what I was experiencing was a true spiritual awakening, not of just individuals, but of our entire species. And this was deepening, deepened in the years that followed. So ever since this time, I have come to understand that my personal belief in the visionary experiences that were given to me in the sessions were showing that humanity is coming to a decisive moment in its evolutionary journey. We were coming into a time of critical challenge and a time requiring maximum effort and uh, maximum clarity. We are literally this is a time of labor. Gestation is long. The period of gestation is a long time, but the time of labor is short and intense and convulsive. We have been preparing for this time in history for thousands and thousands of years through reincarnation, reincarnation, reincarnation. But now we have entered into a time, I think, in which we are giving birth to the future human. We are giving birth to a different kind of human being. And I think we are giving birth to the diamond soul. I think the soul is, going, is entering into history in a collectively uh, an unprecedented fashion. I think the world as we know it was designed by ego. And ego is a magnificently beautiful psychological structure. I mean, I, I really, I respect it enormously, but ultimately, the ego is a fragmented psychological structure, and we, it leaves us cut off from each other and from existence itself. The world designed by the ego creates categories of problems, of division, which we know and recognize well in history now, dividing between races, dividing between religions, dividing between classes, just division, division, division. But the birth of the diamond soul represents a new starting point for humanity, a deeper, and I think the core of it is this, a deep experience of oneness, not just as a concept or as a category, but a profound awakening of oneness within the human heart. And the world that is a, a species which is grounded in this experience of oneness builds a different world than the ego builds. And I think the diamond soul is, we are giving birth to the diamond soul in history. And I see the COVID-19 not as this crisis, but perhaps as an early stage of this fermenting crisis. It, it is a crisis which is very painful and very difficult, but it's teaching us something. If we learn the lessons that COVID-19 has the opportunity to teach us, if we learn about well, 
here. Everybody would put their own fill in the blanks at this point, what it is trying to teach us. But if we learn the lessons of compassion, if we learn how bad things go when we give ourselves over to egoic leadership and divisive patterns of leadership and self-centeredness within the species, then things go very badly. But if we open into other caring, if we open into selflessness, if we open into reining in some of the patterns of blind repetition and greed, then we are learning things which will be very valuable to us when the deeper crises that are coming manifest. And all you have to do is, is just read the works of the deeply informed ecologist and environmental students of, of history to appreciate the, the scale of what we are coming into as we increasingly heat the planet and, and whether the, the tragedies that are going to be generated that are being generated by our changing climate. Mm -hmm. This, I think, is really the, the crisis, the deeper crisis that COVID-19 is giving us an opportunity to prepare for. Yeah, no, beautiful. It's, um, it's in the collective mind as well. I think that we're all on an individual level aware that something is brewing or something is coming. And I, and I don't know if that's how it's been throughout history of humanity, that we've always felt there's some kind of cataclysmic event on the horizon. Um, but now now more than ever, it's certainly um, in, in the collective mind and, and our habits, our nature, our way of being um, at this moment is is both destructive but we're also seeing this kind of psychedelic uh, renaissance and we're also seeing a, a lot of people looking to the past for answers about the future more than ever i think in the past two years than uh, say in the past 20. um but yeah it's uh, mm -hmm. it's a big part of, of 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 your vision um but you say that the covid what, what do you think is it, the covid is only a small uh, part of that uh, but as you look to the future, do you see a, a very, like throughout evolution, previous species have had to die off in order for new versions of ourselves to evolve, yeah? Do, do you see like a, 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 a catastrophe, a, a world-ending catastrophe? Is that what you're, you're pointing to? Well, I want to be careful. I'm not a visionary outside of my psychedelic work. Yes, I don't I don't have a psychic ability to see into the future. And when I I only have what I saw and what I was shown in my visionary experiences inside my psychedelic sessions, these have been consistent and uniform. I trust the consciousness that that gave me these visions. They seem to be deliberate and well crafted. Uh, <clears throat> so I trust them. But I recognize that one person's visions are only one person's visions and they don't necessarily hold the same uh, value uh, to other people. Mm. Uh, so what I saw was a world coming into acute crisis, a, a depth of crisis that was literally breaking us down at very deep and fundamental levels. And it was only when we, when we had reached intolerable amounts of suffering that we were willing to start making choices that we were not willing to contemplate previously. And in making these new choices, choices for the greater good, choices for our children's children's children, 
choices that were necessary in order to pull ourselves back from this destructive binge that we have been on uh, for the last several hundred years. Then a new future began to emerge, but I was not given specifics about how, when, or why. I wasn't told when, I wasn't told why. It was just very, very broad strokes. But what I was given was the, the inner experience of this death and rebirth as a species. And I was given some understanding of the collective mechanisms. See, we have, we have to travel a great distance in a very short period of time. How can we really mature to the rise to the level, uh, to the challenges that we are facing as fast as we need to uh, in order to survive what we are letting loose on the globe? And I was given some insights into mechanisms that are operating at the collective level. I won't go into these in detail because they laid out in the book, but it, it has to do with how systems operate when they move into nonlinear into nonlinear ranges, non-equilibrium systems. Some of the physics of non-equilibrium systems, as they apply to psychic fields and the psychic field of the human family as a totality. Yep. You know, so to me, I guess the, some of the greatest gifts I were given, were, I was given at the end of my journey was to be taken deep into the future and was given the privilege of experiencing this, what I'm calling the future human, the, the, the child that we're giving birth to, what the future human feels like, looks like. And if I try to describe it to you, I'll probably end up weeping because it was so beautiful. This being was so beautiful, so magnificent. We we're talking about a healed humanity, truly healed right down to our bones. Uh, a, a, a humanity with an absolutely radically expanded heart, what Christians look at Jesus and call the sacred heart, the heart, the one heart, a mind open to the intelligence of the universe in new and profound ways a truly enlightened humanity, one and all. Just a, a, a magnificent shift in the common ground of human experience. And I believe that just as a mother, when she has her baby in her arms after a hard labor, forgets the labor at one level because the child is, is with her now. Likewise, humanity Will, is going through this very, very intense birth process. But when this birth sees its goal, when the child is born, when the future human is born on the earth, and I don't have any particular vision of, again, how, when, I don't know whether it's a long gradual or it's a sudden cathartic thing, but mm -hmm. when this child is born in history, we will look back on the terrible pains that we went through to give birth to it, and we'll say, it was worth it. Maybe if we had been smarter, we could have done it easier and faster. Maybe we brought some of this on our own heads unnecessarily. Mm. But when the child is born, it will be worth it. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, you posed a question in, in your book. Um, you said, what is the value of true but temporary knowledge? moving into these planes and coming back and not being able to sustain them. 
um, you mentioned you had different answers at different times. And so I thought it'd be interesting to to ask what, what is your answer to it at the moment, at, at this time? Mm. Well, <clears throat> the soft underbelly, if, if we do this work in order to facilitate not simply temporary highs or temporary, you know, insights, but if we do it in order to um, encourage or facilitate a, a maturation of our psycho-spiritual life, which leads ultimately to a shift in the, on the ground of our consciousness, a, a sh an abiding shift, a shift not only into peak experiences, but sh a shift into plateau experiences. If we approach psychedelic experience with this long-term maturational view, then the soft underbelly of psychedelics is their temporary nature. Mm. You know, we enter into these states, you can't stay there, uh, we're going to be in there only for a few hours at a time, and then we come out. Um, we have to kind of reconcile ourselves with the limitations of the, of the practice that we're engaging in. But if we use those hours carefully, if we use them conscientiously, I believe they do accelerate our evolution. And then they can, by showing us where we are going, they can, it, they begin to act as kind of strange attractors, drawing us into our individual individual and collective evolution faster, more deeply. And so it is frustrating to sort of, you know, at, at two o'clock in the afternoon to be so deeply immersed in the wisdom of the universe. And then by 10 o'clock that night, you know, you're your ordinary mind has congealed around yourself again. And no matter how hard you try, uh, you, you're not living in the same reality that you were in before. Mm -hmm. The value, what is the value of true but temporary knowledge? Uh, and, and I think, in my case at least, uh, I pushed myself perhaps deeper than was wise into deep, deep temporary knowledge. Uh, and so, again, if I were doing it over again, knowing what I know now, I would be more patient with the slower pace of my own personal evolution. Uh, I would, and, and the way this manifested for me is I reached a point after 20 years of this work where I knew it was time for me to stop my sessions. And more importantly, the consciousness that I was engaging knew it was time for me to stop. And it ended our sessions. I did not think they were going to end. I did not know we were ending. But after this very, very deep, what I call the final vision, the last of my great visions in the 70th session, there were three sessions, which I call the goodbye sessions. It, it basically drew our work together to a close. Mm -hmm. And I had been given so many blessings and had been so many uh, joys on the journey. I thought that I could simply withdraw and I would be able to be nurtured for the rest of my life by these blessings. And I have been, and, and that is true. But there's something else that happened. And that is I began to, to experience a profound existential loneliness because I was not able to go back into this deep, deep intimacy with the divine. I, in, even though I continue to do spiritual practice, 
the spiritual practices that I was doing, if I did them for multiple lifetimes, perhaps I would be able to move back there. But in this lifetime, I knew I would not reach that deep until I died. Mm. And I found myself very quietly just waiting to die so I could return uh, to my beloved. And that that's not a good way to live. And mm. it took me a while. It took me literally 10 years after I stopped my sessions to get fully grounded, to recommit myself into living within my incomplete self inside time and space mm. with some contentment for the remainder of my years. And that's why I think uh, true but temporary knowledge can be very valuable. It, transcendence can teach us who we are. It can teach us what we're doing here. It can teach us maybe what the purpose of our life is. Mm -hmm. But if you plunge too deeply into transcendence, as I did, I think, it can also undermine your sense of belonging to the earth. And that is an equally important lesson that it took me a while to, you know, kind of reground myself in after I stopped my sessions. But the other thing I found it was so hard after I stopped, it wasn't just the loss of communion. It was the sickness of silence. It was having to stay silent about my psychedelic experiences. I'm a teacher. I love to get to learn new things and to share that learning with others. But in my society, I was never allowed to bring my experiences to my colleagues, to bring my experiences to my students. I always had to keep silent about my psychedelic experiences because they were illegal. Mm. And but now that I've retired, I retired from my university a little early uh, in order to write Diamonds from Heaven or LSD in the Mind of the Universe. And now, you know, I've given myself permission. I'm past the statute of limitations for these psychedelic crimes. And yeah. now I can say whatever I damn well please. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's quite and liberating. It is liberating. It's it, because it's like coming out of a psychedelic closet. It's just as liberating as coming out of any closet where we are forced to deny the truth of our being. Mm. And so writing this book has really been uh, very healing and facilitated a deeper level of my own experiences because now that I can talk about them, now that I can just talk about them freely and receive other people's experiences freely in the expanded psychedelic conversation, now I can be in my physical existence who I have been also in my shamanic psychedelic existence. Mm. So the two halves of my life are coming back together and I'm beginning to be experience levels of wholeness as an incarnate being that I could not experience as long as I was being forcibly held silent to my experiences. Would you and, say you have found um, any happiness or contentment from your experiences? Obviously, I, I completely empathize and understand with that separation and that um, I don't know if it's a feeling of rejection, but certainly like bereavement or um, not being able to return to those those very unique landscapes and those unique feelings. Um, but with, in, now in life, post sessions, have you found a deeper happiness and contentment? Are you still, uh, Ram Das often says he hasn't cured one neurosis through his entire mm -hmm. um, spiritual journey and he's still <laughs> he ever used to be and so he, he he never really changed or found much much deeper um uh 
deeper liberation, I guess. How is it for you? Hmm. Oh, wonderful Ram Das. <laughs> what an interesting man. Absolutely. Great yeah. respect. Uh, hmm. There is a deep relaxation when you I have had so many existential questions answered. I've had so many existential pains soothed uh, with the clarity of truth of experience. I feel I've been given a much deeper understanding uh, and appreciation for how life works. And in that knowing, in, in that philosophical and spiritual knowing, there is a great relaxation and a sense of deeper cooperation with life. Right. More than that, there's been in the intimacy with the creative intelligence of the universe and experiencing the depth of love that the universe pours into me, into each of us, into all of us together. There's just been such a, there has been a profound spiritual fruition, which probably has not cured me of all my foibles, but I, I certainly hope it's tilted the balance and has helped me become a kinder person, a, uh, a calmer person, uh, uh, a more compassionate person. Mm. You know, enlightenment, that's a tricky thing. Maybe one day, but if I were really aiming for enlightenment as this is classically conceived, living in a condition of deep transparency to our eternal abiding nature, living perpetually conscious of that aspect of our nature, which never begins, never ends, is, is never divided. It, it is the, the unchanging truth on which all changing truth stands. If that were the goal of this work, I would have done the work differently. I would have worked with very, very small doses, uh, the purpose of my work or the project of my work it began kind of pursuing enlightenment, but it became, that just fell away early on. It, the work became to support the enlightenment of my people, to support the transformation of humanity as a whole. Wow. And then beyond that, it became a process of cosmic exploration to enter as deeply as I could into the inside of the universe and was given the opportunity to see things and experience things that are went far beyond my ability to uh, stabilize as an abiding consciousness when I return. So it's not, from this perspective, I don't consider uh, my sessions as failures of attempted enlightenment. I see them as successes of, of cosmic exploration. And which, of course, is related to the condition of awakening or enlightenment at one level. But at another level, it's different. It's really quite different. You don't have to go back to the beginning of the Big Bang to be enlightenment. You don't have to experience archetypal reality. You don't have to experience the future evolution of humanity to be enlightened. This is a just a different project. I hope, however, 
in the deepening intimacy with the divine. I hope there's been some progress towards uh, spiritually wakening up, uh, you know, healing the fragments of, that we all carry from our historical experiences. I feel uh, a deep peace uh, and contentment, and perhaps most notably, not only am I not afraid of dying, I'm looking forward to it. There's absolutely no fear for me yeah. because I know I know where I'm going. Yes. I know, I know where we're going. You know, we're, we're going deeper into that light. So if, you're, if there were one thing I wish I could give to other people from my experiences, it would be this loss of fear of death. Yes. Because if you're afraid of dying, your entire cosmology is upside down. Yes. This is where this is the hard place. This is the time space is where the hard work is done. Spiritual reality is is it's uh, it's reward. It's home. It's light. Mm -hmm. Have you been tempted uh, in these later years to go back? Uh, I, I you'll know Aldous Huxley on his deathbed. Uh, his wife injected him with a, a large amount, uh, I think it was around 500 micrograms of LSD, and read him the, Tibet, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, have you been tempted to go back into a high-dose session all these years later? I think it's been 20 years, hasn't it? Yeah. Actually, uh, he was injected with two low-dose sessions, oh, very really? low doses. Yeah, just low. And uh, Laura Huxley discusses this in her uh, biography, of autobiography. Uh, no, I mean, I, I've done, I've done low dose sessions with LSD in the years since I stopped, but generally I find it, it, it doesn't work well with me now. I mean, I've had wonderful experiences, but I've pushed my system so hard with the high doses that it, it is almost as if I've developed an allergy for it. Right. Um, and and if I were to take a massive dose of LSD today, I would not be able to get back to where I was regularly journeying in the last years of my work. And it, it has to do with energy. Um, every step into a deeper level of reality is it moves you into a, 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 a more intense level of energy. And there is an accumulation of energy that builds up in your being, in your over multiple sessions. So I found that my system was accumulating energy, storing this energy from session after session, even though those sessions were months apart. Mm. It was accumulating a massive quantity of energy, which would then focus that energy and lead to a breakthrough into a new level of consciousness. So those breakthroughs are being paid for, not simply by hours of intense psychedelic work, they sometimes were being paid for by years of yeah. psychedelic work. So if I wanted to get back into some of the territory I was exploring of the diamond luminosity, that territory, I think it would take me years of yeah. conscientious work to develop the momentum, the energetic momentum to tap that deeply into the universe again. So at this point in my life, I'm content with... Mm, more conventional spiritual practices, a daily meditation practice. Mm. Uh, if I do use psychedelics, sometimes I use gentler psychedelic psilocybin or ayahuasca, which basically helps connect me to the fields of knowledge 
that continued to surround me deriving from my my LSD work. So mm-hmm. I, I experienced them not as breaking new ground, but as helping me integrate and absorb what I've already done into my present being, which is how I experienced my, my meditation practice. I'm not trying to go back to where I was into my most intense psychedelic experiences. I'm not trying to break new ground. I'm simply facilitating a deeper absorption of the reality that I touched on those days into my physical being. Mm. Like Alan Watts' famous adage, when you've got the message, hang up the phone. Um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> is, is that where you're at now? Or? Well, uh, uh, that's... Uh, no, I don't. I would just say that's not been my experience. I mean, this is what Houston Smith used that adage when yeah. he had had about. He says in his book, uh, "Cleansing the Doors of Perception." After he had had about a half dozen psychedelic experiences, the bummers increased, and uh, it it just really wasn't working for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, my experience is. <laughs> It's when the bummers increase, it's when the deeper cleansing is taking place, and that's when it begins to get interesting. It's only when death starts to really pound on you hard that it really begins to get interesting. When you're having to lay your life on the line, then it's getting interesting. So to me, if we say, once you get the message, hang up the phone, well, okay, but what is the message? And there's so many messages and so many levels. Nobody judges for another. But to me... There are messages that come through in the early work, and they're magnificent. And there are messages that come through in the middle work, and there are messages that come through in the later work. And if I had stopped with the early messages, it would have been perfectly okay, absolutely perfectly okay. But I would have missed some of the things that came later. So so I think everybody has to make the choices of how much is good for them. Mm-hmm. How much serves them, and then whether it becomes counterproductive. And I'll own right up front that I think I bit off a little bit more, not not more than I could chew, because I chewed it all, but I bit off more, maybe than was wise for for me to bite off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Chris, thank you very much for your time here and this conversation. It's, it really has been brilliant and you've been massively inspiring in my life and and i know the lives of of many others that are involved in these kind of um paths and pursuits and these things that sometimes can seem so foreign and so um abstract that when when you've taken the time as you have done to rigorously catalog everything you went through uh, over these years and put it in a book for, for for some of us to read that is very reassuring because it can it can let us know that what's happening to us and what's happening to others is not just some random random happening. It's like well it it happened to this guy and he's got a PhD and he's a teacher and <laughs> he lived a very normal life and and so you're not completely insane. Um, as some of us yeah. confused sometimes, and that's what your book has done for me and, and for many others. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you, Ryan. It, it truly is a it's an honor to have this discussion with you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to share this time together. It's a true joy for me and a privilege in my old age 
just to be able to have these kind of conversations because you are there's a whole new generation and a generation behind this generation which is going into this territory and we all have a lot to learn from each other yes Perfect. So your book is available on Amazon. And I don't know if you have a website, do you, Chris? You know, I'm afraid it's not finished yet. It will be out, I hope, in a month or two. I've just been slow and busy. I've just moved to North Carolina. It slowed up some of these things. But uh, the website will be chrisbeige.com. Perfect. Uh, But for the time being, uh, people can find my articles and essays on a, a website called academia.edu and uh, and the book is on Amazon. Yep, and it's also very uh, nicely enjoyed as an audio book on Audible which I can recommend to people because it's read by you also. So, I think that Yeah, I enjoyed that. I think the writ- the word the spoken word has a power even beyond the written word. And I really valued the opportunity to be able to read the book for for listeners. Absolutely. Okay, Chris. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in contact. So, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Love and blessings. You too. Thank you.